Okay, so we, uh, the first night is always a busy night. It is a night where I have to cover a lot of things to get us set for this semester, um, but it's a good night. But the two things that I always have to accomplish are, first of all, I need to let you know why we do things the way that we do, um, especially because we have so many women who haven't done the study before. I'm sure that you have heard various versions of how we do things from whoever it is that lured you in here with promises of additional Girl Scout cookies or whatever it took. Can I just say on the Girl Scout thing that this year when they went to that whole cookies on demand system, we had a complete and utter breakdown of self-control at my house. Did anybody else? Like they were like, how many boxes you want? My friend texts me, tell me how many cookies you want. So I was like, I want them all. I don't know. Like how many are there? And so I sent her, I want eight boxes of Thin Mints. And like 10 seconds later, there's this little knock on the door and this precious little angel is standing there holding my cookies. And I was like, this is like, this is better than Amazon. <laughs> so I hate that. If anyone lured you here with cookies, they're not here anymore because I've eaten everything in the immediate vicinity. Where was I? A lot to cover, and I'm telling you random Girl Scout cookie stories. Okay, we are going to do two things. We're going to lay out how we do the study. We're going to take um, the time to do that because we have a lot of people who this is their first time in the study. And then secondly, we're going to do what we do every time, and that is we're going to set up the book of James. So um, what we do when we study is we start with a book of the Bible, and occasionally, if I have a weak moment, we might do a significant passage, a passage of significant length from the Bible. But if at all possible, I try to do entire books of the Bible from start to finish. So if you've never done a study before, you chose a good one because this one's only five chapters long. Um, If you show up on Old Testament semester, sometimes we're like, where's the fire hose? Let's put our mouth around it. Let's see how much we can get down. Talk about a good way to drink water. That's one there. So, but we're not in that this semester. That'll start up in the fall. Um, You've got another semester of New Testament and we have chosen the book of James. So in 11 weeks, we will cover five chapters. And the beauty of doing that is that we just so rarely do this. Have you noticed that? So often the things that we refer to as Bible study are sitting down, flipping to a passage, reading a few verses, getting to the end and asking the question, how does this change my life? There's nothing inherently wrong with doing that other than that you can run into trouble if you don't really know what's on either side of the verses that you sat down to read. And if you haven't asked some foundational questions about the book that is surrounding the passage that you have read. Because the Bible, while it is written to you, was written to someone else before it was written to you. And we have to pay attention to that. If we're going to honor the text in the way that it deserves to be honored, we need to read it asking some very important questions. These are archaeological questions. That's kind of the way that I refer to them. And we're going to cover those tonight with the book of James. We're going to ask who wrote the book. I know you're thinking that's the easiest answer in the world. Then we're going to ask to whom was it written? When was it written? What are the main themes of the book? What's the style of the book? Just some basic archaeological questions so that we can know what we're coming at. Uh, The book of James is probably familiar to you. How many in here have read the book of James? Yeah, almost all of you. How many in here have studied the book of James at one time? 
Okay, and so some of you are like, star student time, right? So part of what I like to do is mix it up a little bit and ask you to look at things that feel very familiar to you and see them from a different angle. So that's a lot of what we will do this semester is try to look with fresh eyes at what is often a familiar book to us. I like, you know, as much as I like to study the books that no one will ever go to on their own, I also enjoy studying books and passages that everyone thinks they already know. Because I'm kind of the same way. I'm like, James, I'm so done with that. Totally hold my tongue, totally have that all under control, right? (laughs) Like, I did have to laugh a little when some of the girls who were signing up would be like, well, I've already studied that, so I may not come this semester. And I was like, right, because you're done with self-control. Like, you've got that down. I mean, no, I totally get that. But there's always, for me, every time I study the book of James, I'm like, go ahead, punch me in the face again. Punch me in the face again. That's what it feels like, you know, because there's always more room to grow with this book. So we will ask these archaeological questions because we want to handle the Bible with the same level of respect that, think about it, we would handle any other book that we read. I mean, how often do you pick up a book from the bookstore and not pay any regard to who wrote it or how long ago it was published or what the book is about? We don't do that. And you certainly don't pick up a book in the bookstore, flip to the middle of it, and read a passage out of it, and then try to figure out what, it, what meaning you're going to take from it, right? You wouldn't do that. So we're going to be studying a letter, right? The letter of James. Have you ever in your life gotten a letter in the mail? Well, back when we used to get letters in the mail. Did you ever open a letter without looking at the envelope to see who it was from, where it had come from? And did you ever pull out a letter and turn to the second page and read a paragraph and try to figure out what the letter was trying to say to you? No. You read the envelope, you pulled the letter out, you saw who it was from, you started at the beginning, and you read to the end. Why? Because you assumed that the person who wrote that letter to you wrote it with intent that they started somewhere and they built to another point and they built to another point and they drew it to a conclusion at the end. Why don't we do that with the Bible? You're in a room where we're going to. Now, it seems like it's so self-evident. And the thing is, you guys know, those of you who know me, know that my drumbeat is for Bible literacy. I want us to know what our Bibles say. And I think that it is an ongoing and growing problem in the church that fewer and fewer of us have firsthand knowledge of what our Bibles say. We have been content to read books about the Bible or hear sermons about the Bible or do studies that integrate broad concepts from the Bible, but we have devoted less and less time to actually doing what? reading the Bible itself. And so that's what we're going to take time to do this semester. You would never try to study a scene out of one of Shakespeare's plays and say that you understand Shakespeare. You would never read a book about Shakespeare and say that you have mastery of his plays. You would at some point have to read his plays and know what they say to know which book about Shakespeare had the best read on his technique and on his themes and all of those things. And the same thing is true of the Bible. There are a thousand voices clamoring to tell you what the Bible means. And not all of them are telling you the truth. But how will you know which voice is telling you the truth? You won't unless you have firsthand knowledge of what Scripture says. So we take a book and we start at the beginning and we read to the end. And we ask some basic questions. Now, I described to you what many of us do when we pick up the Bible. And I said that we open it and we ask a question of it. And what is the question we ask? How does this change my life? 
That is an application question. We want to know, how do I read and apply this book to my life? But if you have your bookmark with you, I want to show you that we're going to take a little bit of a different approach. It is good to ask the question, how does this change me? The Bible should change the way that we see the world and the way that we see each other and the way that we live. But it should do something before it does that. Because when we open the Bible and we believe that all it has to tell us is how we should change or what we should do differently, we've kind of missed the point. Do you know why? Because the Bible is not a book about us. The Bible is a book about God, unabashedly, unapologetically, from the first page to the last page. It is a book that describes the character and nature and outer workings of the person of God. Genesis chapter 1 begins with, in the beginning, who? God created the heavens and the earth. It does not say, in the beginning, you were in the heart of God. And he couldn't wait to get to the day of creation where you came on the scene. It begins with, in the beginning, God. And then God remains the subject of the narrative. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And if you flip to Revelation, do you know what it says at the end of Revelation? Do you think that the focus of that narrative is on the worshipers around the throne? Absolutely not. Who is the center of that narrative? It is God, high and lifted up and seated on that throne, who is the center of that narrative. And these are textual clues to us that if the book is bookended with God at the center and God at the center, maybe the rest of this book is one where we can look to see where God is at the center of the text. So when we study, rather than start by asking, what does this book have to say about me? We're going to ask a different question. What does this book have to say about God? Why? Because the knowledge of self and the knowledge of God are inseparable. I cannot truly know myself apart from knowing who God is, okay? So we think that we gain self-knowledge by looking at the girl next to us and seeing whether she's better or worse than we are at being a mom or at being a housewife or at her job or whatever it is, and we measure ourselves, don't we? But do we ever gain true knowledge of self that way? What happens when we find out in Scripture that God always chooses rightly because he's infinitely wise? Now compare yourself to that. Okay, you just got some true self-knowledge because are you infinitely wise? Do you always choose rightly? No, we're not that great at that. And so then how does that change me? I cry out to God and I ask him for wisdom and discernment and I pray that he would make me better at choosing rightly when the decision is before me. But as long as I'm just looking at the person next to me, I just have to be wiser than she is to feel okay about who I am. So the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self always go hand in hand. So when I tell you that the Bible is a book about God, I don't mean that the Bible is not a book about you. It is a book about you in relation to a holy God. So we ask, what does this text tell me about God? We see ourselves in relation to it. And then we say, how should I now live in light of this? But before we get to the place where we get to ask how a text changes us, we have to back way back and recapture a few skills that we should have learned in our high school English class. But if you, like me, grew up in Texas, you may have had the football coach for your high school English teacher. Anyone? I'm not hating on football. I'm just saying it doesn't always overlap with English. So 
When we study, we are going to move through three stages. Comprehension, which asks, what does the text say? Interpretation, which asks, what does the text mean? And then finally, what we've been talking about, application. How should it change me? Where we say, what does it say about God? How do I see myself in relation to him? What should I do? So what is comprehension, that first step that we need to move through? Well, you took the SAT, right? Everybody took, or the ACT, if you felt more comfortable with that. Doesn't matter. On each of them, there was a reading comprehension section. And what did you do? You read a passage, and then you answered questions that tried to ascertain whether you had actually taken in what you had read. Okay? And so they were just basically to see, could you retain facts? Did you retain the logic of what was going on in the passage? And so in your homework, you're going to have comprehension questions. And sometimes what they're going to look like is, hey, you know that word righteousness that you've read a thousand times and you're pretty sure you know what that means? Why don't you look that up in an English dictionary and see if the definition that you find there expands your meaning of the word at all? So I might have you look up a word in the dictionary. I might have you underline repeated words and phrases. You have a copy of the text that's in the back of your notebook that is for that purpose. Uh, I might have you take a section of scripture and read it and then rewrite it in your own words. Not because paraphrasing is the most fun ever. Who loves that? Nobody. And when you do it in your homework, you're all like, if someone asks me to read this aloud in my small group, I'm never, ever coming back. Right? Because nobody wants anybody to see that. Listen, I don't care if you write a bad paraphrase. I hope you write a good one. But the point of the exercise is for you to move closer to comprehending just what the passage says. Okay? So it doesn't have to be the kind of thing where Eugene Peterson's going to call you up and go, Hey, we're working on a new copy of the message. Can we get you to contribute? We don't need that. What we need is for you to look closely enough at the text that you can take that in and then put it out in your own words. And it is for your benefit. And it's okay to read back and after you've gone through the discussion time and the teaching and you're like, I need to revisit that. That's fine. It's all part of the learning process. So we will give you some basic tools that will help you to gain comprehension. And just asking, what does the text say? And then after that, we will have some questions that will deal with interpretation. What does the text mean? So if you were studying the account of Genesis, in Genesis of the seven days, the six days of creation, uh, if you comprehended that, it would mean that I could give you a pop quiz. Don't worry, there are no pop quizzes. In fantasy land, I could give you a pop quiz over that section of the text, and you would be able to tell me, on day three, this happened. On day two, this happened. This is the day the fish were made. This is the day the birds populated the sky. Because you had comprehended what you had read. And then when we get to interpretation... Okay, well, I can't give you every interpretation for Genesis chapter 1 right now. But one interpretation you could pull from that of what does this mean would be that God created everything. And what's significant about that? Because you take that interpretation. This is an important thing. God created everything and it was an orderly work. I can see these two things. Well, how does that apply then? How do I live in light of that? If God created everything, it changes the way I relate to creation, doesn't it? Because I don't own any of it. He does. And that means I'm a steward. Do I live my life as someone who is stewarding someone else's resources? Or do I live my life like someone who believes it all belongs to me? Okay? So you're going to move. Comprehension, interpretation, application. Can you see how much room there would be for misapplying scripture if you have not first fought the battle to comprehend what it says and to interpret what it means? But that's hard, isn't it? That takes a little bit of effort. 
And we, we don't really know how we feel about that because it seems like God's word should be easy for us to understand because doesn't he want us to know who he is and doesn't the Holy Spirit speak through scripture? So why should this be a difficult thing? But do you know what the, the root definition of the word disciple is? Because you're all called to be disciples. What that root definition is, is a learner. It is someone who learns. And I don't know about you, but I can't think of one useful thing that I have ever learned that wasn't difficult when I first started to learn it. So why do we believe that learning and acquiring a base level of knowledge about God's word would be an easy thing? Come to think of it, why do we think any part of being a disciple is going to be easy? Missions isn't easy, right? Evangelism isn't easy. There aren't easy parts. There is fruitfulness in the difficulty. As we looked last, uh, year, last semester in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the commands of God are not burdensome, but they are what? They're difficult. They require effort. And it is grace-driven effort because we love the God who the scripture describes. So it is going to take a little effort, but hopefully it will be a joyful effort and one whose fruit you will begin to see. So we ask, what does it say? What does it mean? And how should it change me? Your homework, the intention of your homework and the intention of this study, you may have come here thinking our goal is to learn the book of James. And yeah, I mean, that's true. I want you to know the book of James. But anytime we gather to study, more importantly, I want you to know how to handle your Bible better than you did when you came, when you get to the end of the study. My hope is that some of you repeat offenders who's done two or three studies with me. Do you read your Bible the same way that you did? No. And it's not because I'm some kind of Bible study magician. It's because you've started to learn some basic tools. And now when you read on your own and you hit a word that you think, I wonder if I looked that up if it would change things. Or I think I saw that somewhere else. You're learning to do these methods on your own. And it changes things. It, you, you just, you, you're never that open to sitting down and just trying to pull something quickly from the word to kind of take your daily bread from it. You see it as something that will pay a long-term reward. And I think that's part of the issue with these application-driven studies that are out there is we so much want to say, God, I put in my 20 minutes. Can I have my day of peace of mind out? And we treat Bible study like it is a debit card that we put in the time and we withdraw what we need for the day. But what if Bible study is not a debit card? What if it is a savings account? What if you are investing time building up a storehouse of beautiful treasure that someday when your life falls apart is waiting there for you? Wouldn't that be fantastic? And so what we do when we try to study is we challenge ourselves to embrace the idea that when God gives the great command, love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that it is possible that we as women have neglected one of those four things more than the other. That it is possible that we have been very good at loving God with our hearts, with our emotions, with our feelings. That that is something that comes very naturally to us and that we enjoy. And that is a beautiful thing, but we cannot love him with our emotions and neglect to love him with our mind. Do you know why? Why do people, why do people even bother with Christianity? Like what do we say all the time happens when you become a follower of Christ? You begin to be transformed, right? 
We want transformation, and we celebrate stories of life transformation in church. And we, um, you know, we post videos about life transformation. We want to be changed. We want to be changed. We want to be changed. And the question is, how does change happen? And the scripture answers it. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, that thing that we all want, by the renewing of your mind. Not your heart, your mind. Why? Why is the path to transformation one that starts with the mind and moves to the heart and not the other way around? Because if you think about it, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. If I told you that I loved piano, how hard would it be for you to figure out if I truly did love it? You could ask me to sit down and play for you and you would immediately know if I had loved the piano with my mind or just in my heart. Because if I never took the time and trouble to learn the piano, how great was my love for it? Another example I would give you is of marriage. You know, I always say we get married on very little information. (laughs) You meet this guy and you're like, he's adorable, it's going to be perfect. And yeah, I mean, for the most part, sure. But you start to learn more things about this person after you get married. And if the way that you make a study of them is such that you look for ways to learn, what do they enjoy? What are the things that please them? How can I take on their interests? How can I enter into the things that matter to them? What ends up happening is you grow into this strong and deep relationship. Why? Because you've made a study of the person that you felt that initial rush of emotion for. And then what happened? The more you got to know them, the deeper the emotion grew. Nothing could be more true of our relationship with God. Don't we come into the kingdom the same way on a rush of emotion? We love him. We love him. We love him. He's delivered us from sin and death. And then what? We hit a dry spot. Why don't I feel that way anymore? Do you know that the, the flames of our love for the Lord are not fanned by seeking repeated experiences of him that feed only our hearts? The love of God is fanned by loving him with all of our minds, making a study of his character as it is proclaimed in his word, and to know him is to love him. So that's what we are about. We are not here to learn to be smarty pants who can quote things from the book of James, although that'd be kind of awesome if we had like a little quote off one week. That will never happen. We are not here to acquire knowledge for knowledge's sake. We are here to grow and deepen and expand our love for a God who infinitely deserves it. That is what we will come here to do every week. All right, so enough about that. Um, That is why we study the way that we do, and that is what will be our process for this semester. And with that in mind, if you will turn to page three in your workbook, we have our fill-in sheet that we do each time from the beginning of the study. We are going to answer our archaeological questions so that we can frame the book of James properly in its context. First question, who wrote the book of James? Okay, everybody, who wrote the book of James? Yeah, you think you're so smart. You know how many Jameses there are in the New Testament? About 5,000. Okay, not that many, but there are quite a few Jameses. It was a very common name, and it comes up a lot. But if you start looking into it, as scholars have done, you begin to realize that 
really a couple of them are just mentioned in random spots here and there. We don't know anything else about them. But we have two um, lead contenders for who could have written the book of James. And one of them is the clear standout winner. But the first contender is James, um, James the son of Zebedee. And he's listed as one of the apostles. Uh, the problem with James the son of Zebedee and authorship of the book is that he was one of the very first martyrs. He was martyred in 44 AD, right at the beginning of the persecution of Christians, the Roman persecution of Christians, when it began to intensify. And so if you've read the book of James, you know that it deals with the theme of persecution. And so um, it's likely that the book would have been written after that date, if he died at the beginning of that time, it pretty much knocks him out because his death occurred too early for the writing of the book. So that leaves us with our second contender, James, the brother of Jesus. Did you know Jesus had a brother? Jesus had a half-brother. As we're going to see, he also had some sisters and some other brothers, and we'll look at some verses about that in just a minute. James, the brother of Jesus, probably the most convincing reason to think that he is the one who wrote the book is because he rose to a position of prominence in the church in Jerusalem. And in the, in the chapter, uh, chapter 15 of Acts, we have a rather lengthy address that he gives to the, the council at Jerusalem, which was in 49 A.D., And if you compare linguistically the style of that particular passage to the book of James, there are so many similarities that it seems um, difficult to, to dismiss that he would have been the author of this letter in addition to the one who spoke at the council. Um, James, the brother of Jesus, was a leader in the early church, and he carried a lot of responsibility. Because if you think about it, you know, we have churches today that everybody kind of looks to and wants to know, well, how are you doing things? Like, how do you make everything work? Well, imagine if the church is brand new, like Christianity is a new thing, and you're in Jerusalem, which is where the whole thing started. So basically, what's going on at the church in Jerusalem is setting the course for what is going on in other smaller churches all over the surrounding area. So it matters a lot that they make wise decisions and good choices. And it sounds like James was someone who was very wise and who was very well respected in his position in the church. He had a nickname, and that nickname was James the Just. I'm pretty sure no one would call me Jen the Just if they were just coming up with a nickname. So indicating that he was wise and that he made good decisions and that he decided rightly on behalf of others. And he had another nickname that's even cooler than that one. His nickname was Camel Knees. Do you know why? Because he spent so much time in intercessory prayer for others, historians recorded that his knees had taken on the leathered appearance of the knees of a camel. He's others-focused. He's concerned with the welfare of others. He is a humble person, a humble leader with great authority. And here's another reason why you should want to read a letter written by this man. He died in 62 A.D. Do you know how he died? Well, apparently after enough time had passed, he sufficiently angered the Jewish community that they were tired of him as a Christian Jew. And so they decided that they were going to stone him. But the Jewish leaders were so enraged at him that they could not wait for the stoning sentence to be passed out. So he was taken by basically a mob to the top of one of the temple towers and he was thrown down. They intended to kill him by throwing him down, but he didn't. He didn't die, and so at the point that he lands, people come and commence with the stoning. But even the stoning did not end his life. And eventually, someone came with a club to finish the job. So when you read James call you to obedience, 
before a heavenly father. Know that he was someone who believed in obedience and faithfulness even to the point of death. Know that his faith is not one that is one of speech only, but that he lived it out to the uttermost. So to whom was the book of James written? James writes his letter, as we'll see when we look at the first verse in a few minutes, to the Jewish Christians who were in the earliest days of the Christian church. And they had spread from Jerusalem because of persecution that was going on in the area. And so in the opening sentence, you'll see he says, to the dispersion, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Just a general statement which meant to you, you faithful who were in the area and have now spread out in the surrounding areas. And so he's going to write a letter to encourage them to be steadfast, as we'll see when we get into the lesson next week. When was the letter written? Well, scholars believe that because it does not make any mention of the Jerusalem council that happened in 49 AD, which was a very significant moment in the life of the church, um, that it was written sometime between 44 AD when the persecution began and 49 AD when the council happened. So we can date it sometime between 44 and 49 AD, not long at all after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And because we date it to this time period, James bears the distinction of being what we consider to be the earliest written book of the New Testament. It was written before the Gospels were written, written before Paul's epistles. And you can see this in the writing style because he uses a lot of sort of Old Testament language. The book refers to Jesus only twice, but it refers to God or Father or Lord um, many, many times. 32 references to God, Father, or Lord in five chapters. A very Old Testament language pattern. So you may wonder, why would James, the brother of Jesus, mention Jesus so little? But the truth is, he mentions him in other ways constantly throughout this very short, bro- short book. There are 20 references to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. 20 references in a five-chapter book to Jesus' longest recorded message that we see in the book of Matthew. There are over 40 references to the Old Testament. And get this, 54 direct calls to obedience. There will be 54 direct calls to his original listeners and to you and me. This is the way. Walk in it. 54 in five chapters. The book of James, though it mentions Jesus only twice, contains more verbal reminiscences of the teachings of Jesus than all the other apostolic writings together. That means all of Paul's letters, Peter's letters, John's letters, all of them combined bear less similarity to the teachings of Jesus than these five chapters that James gives us here. Apparently, James paid close attention to the words that were coming from the mouth of his brother. What style is the book written in? The book is closest in style to wisdom literature. Um, You know what wisdom literature is. It's sort of these short, pithy statements that sort of punch a pack. So what's wisdom literature in the Old Testament? Can you think of any of it? Proverbs is the most obvious one, right? Song of Solomon, I think it's counted in there. What else? Ecclesiastes. So that same kind of idea of you're going to get a lot of um, wallop for the punch, if you will. You're going to read very short Um, sections of scripture and take away a lot from them. Um, As I said, it uses Old Testament imagery and writing style. So it's basically New Testament wisdom literature. 
What is the central theme of the book of James? Its central theme is how to live out in practical everyday life the life of godliness. It's basically where does the rubber meet the road is what James will be asking. Is He's like, sure, now you're a believer. Now what? And so he's going to talk a lot about what we should do. He's going to answer the question, what does genuine faith actually look like? One of the verses you may already be familiar with is where he says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And because he places such an emphasis on doing, many people have had a difficult time with James because they feel like what he says pushes back against what Paul says, right? Because Paul talks a lot about, hey, grace, grace, grace. You're not saved through works. You're saved by grace through faith alone. And we're going to get to spend a lot of time this semester looking at whether Paul and James disagree or if Paul and James agree. But here's the thing. James is written with the assumption that those who are reading it are believers. So if you come here and you are not certain where you stand with regard to salvation, like if you haven't necessarily made up your mind on whether the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ should have any impact on your life at all, then you are signing up for a semester in which you will learn how to be a very moral person, and that is it. I cannot even tell you how worthless that is. Because what what James will be describing to us is a kind of obedience that is different from simple morality. Simple morality apart from God says, I will do the right thing so that I can gain something in return. But once we have Christ in our hearts and once our hearts have been transformed and our desires have been changed, we now want to do the right thing, not just to gain something from someone else. We want to do the right thing for the right reason because we so desperately love the God who asks it of us. It is a joyful obedience out of gratitude. It is not a grudging obedience out of fear. This is a letter that is written to believers. Please don't come here this semester for a morality lesson. Understand that every time we are given a command, it is telling us something about the God from whom the command originated. When he tells us to persevere, it is because God perseveres in his love toward us. When he tells us to be careful with our words, it is because God treasures words. He takes them very seriously. He who called his own son, the word made flesh. Look for more than a simple morality lesson. So let's turn very quickly so that I don't perpetuate my bad reputation for going long on night one to James 1.1 and very quickly see what we can pull from it. James 1.1. We're going to cover one verse tonight. That will never happen again. It says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So we've talked about that second phrase, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, to those Jewish Christians who are dispersed in the area in and around Jerusalem. But notice what he says in his opening line, James, a servant of God. Okay, that sounds nice. Until you look at what the word is that he's actually used there for servant. And it's the word doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S, which means slave. 
But it doesn't just mean slave. It means the lowest kind of slave. It is someone who was born into slavery, who was utterly dependent on the master for provision of all of his physical needs, and who would remain a slave for the entire period of his life to the one that he served. It means literally one born a slave. So he says, James, one born a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this word Lord here is the word kurios in the Greek. And it corresponds to the Hebrew word Adonai, which appears in the Old Testament in reference to God the Father. And it means the sovereign one. And so to James's Jewish Christian listeners, when they hear the term Adonai attached not to God the Father, but to Jesus, what will they know? James believes that Jesus is God. So he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord, the sovereign one, Jesus Christ. And we hear that term Christ so often that I think we've forgotten to ask what it means. What does the term Christ mean? Do you know? That's right. I heard it. Messiah. Savior. The promised one of the Old Testament. James. One born a slave of God. And of the sovereign one, Jesus, the Messiah foretold. This is who James says that he is. But that term Adonai, when it is not applied to God, when it is applied to a person, actually means something else. It means the slave owner. James, one born a slave of God and of the slave owner, Jesus, the Messiah. James views himself as a slave to Christ, but not just as a slave to Christ, but as one who was born into slavery to Christ. Does that sound like Romans 6 to anyone? We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now slaves to what? Righteousness. James has become a slave of Christ. Now, we have a lot of negative connotations around the word slave. We just had MLK Day yesterday, and so we've had some thinking about this. But we need to understand that when James uses the word slave in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ and to God, that he refers to a slave owner who is infinitely good infinitely kind, who wants the very best interest of those who are in his service. And that is so different. It's such a different image than what we currently commonly associate with slavery. He says this is a joyful thing. But I think what is possibly most interesting about what he says in this opening is what he does not say. Because if I were James and I were a person who was respected and had authority and I were writing a letter to a group of people who needed to take my word for it and act on the 54 things that I was going to tell them to do, I probably would have opened a little differently. When you send a letter out, like an email out through work and it puts your auto signature on there, what does it usually say? Does it say, Jen, a slave to my boss? (laughs) What does it say? It gives your job title, something that indicates what your role is, gives you a credential. So if I'm the half-brother of the sinless son of God, how is that not what I lead off with? Right? 
Or maybe I get a little, you know, coy with it and I say, son of Mary. You know, it's kind of like let them find their way around to the punchline. <laughs> Head of the Jeru- First Baptist Church Jerusalem, senior pastor. But that's not what he says. He makes no appeal to the authority that he has. He takes this completely humble opening and he says, do you know who I am? I'm a slave. And here's the deal. Did anybody in here have an annoying older brother who was perfect? Imagine being James. What happens when there's someone in your family who you perceive to be the favorite, right or wrong? Do you love being around that person or do you resent that person? So what was that dynamic like? Like, what was it like? Because apparently where James is when he writes this letter is, I worship my brother as God. How does he get to that point? Let's take a look at his history and see if we can find out. Mark chapter 6 is where we're going to start. So just turn there. Mark chapter 6. I'll give you a minute. I put sticky notes in my Bible so that I could look like I really knew how to get there fast. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse... One. He, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty words done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So his hometown doesn't think he's that awesome. Why? Because they know his people. I know all your people. And did you notice who his people were? It was significant that it said that Mary was his mother and then it listed his brothers and it started with James. You know why that's significant? Those of you who have studied the Old Testament with me, when we see a list of brothers in the Old Testament, isn't it usually in birth order? Oldest to youngest? So not only is James Jesus' half-brother, but it seems very likely we can imply from the text that he was probably the oldest of his half-siblings. So at our house, that means he shared a bunk. (laughs) He was someone who would have known Jesus better than any of the other siblings because he just would have logged more hours with him. And we don't know how long long after Jesus' birth, Joseph and Mary had children of their own. But we'll see that apparently they spent time together as adults. So let's flip a little earlier in Jesus' ministry to Mark chapter 3. Flip back a few pages. Mark chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 20. So basically, he's just called the 12. That's where he is in his ministry. He's at the beginning of his ministry. He's called the 12. The crowds are beginning to gather and follow him. So verse 20, it says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. How's ministry going with relation to your family, Jesus? Now, isn't this interesting? Because I would like to think that if I shared even a neighborhood, much less a bedroom or a living room with someone who never committed a sin, that I would pick up on that. But that does not seem to be the case. They think he's crazy. They think he's annoying. We'll see something else in just a minute. Why is that? Is it possible that we are so self-focused 
that even if there were someone sinless living in the same room with us, we would read their sincerity as somehow a dig against us, that we would read their obedience as a way to push us down, it would seem to be the case. So let's flip a little bit later. We're going to go to John chapter 7, see if things have gotten any better. This is later in Jesus' ministry. Starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Okay, so that's where we are. He's, he's gotten everybody riled up enough that in Judea, the area surrounding Jerusalem, the Jews are already ready to kill him, but he knows that it's not time yet. So he's hanging out in another region. He's hanging out in Galilee, which is where he's from. So in verse 2, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So where would the feast of booths take place? At the temple, which was where? In Jerusalem, which is in the region of Judea, which is where they want to kill Jesus. Okay, so it says, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the words that you are doing, the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Not only do they not believe in him, but did you notice what they were willing to do to him? Why don't you go put yourself in harm's way and see what happens? They are openly animositorious. What's the word I'm looking for? (laughs) They hold animosity toward him. Wow, someone should have had a cappuccino before she came. So at this stage in his ministry, not only are they not supporting him, but they are actually looking for ways to place him in harm's way. This is James. This is the guy who wrote our letter. So how does he go from that guy to the person who writes the introduction to our letter? I think he gets there the same way that we all do. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 and see what we can find. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. This is Paul speaking. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. You know who Cephas is? That's Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all of the apostles. James, the brother of Jesus, sees the one that he saw crucified, dead, and buried, is alive. And he becomes born into slavery to the Messiah. So let's turn to one more reference. Turn to Acts chapter 1. And we can see that the transformation becomes complete. Acts chapter 1.
starting in verse 10. So this is right after Jesus ascends into heaven with everybody looking up after him as he ascends into heaven. So this is after he has shown himself to all the people as we heard described in 1 Corinthians. Starting in verse 10, it says, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Now listen to all the Jameses who we've already disqualified from authorship. Peter and John and James and Andrew, that's not our James, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, nope, not him either, um, and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. Nope, not him either. Verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and who? His brothers. His brothers. Having seen the risen Christ, they believe and they become a part of the growth and spread of the church. So, What can we take from this? James, who could have called Jesus his brother in the opening of his letter, chooses this humble title that expresses the relationship he feels he truly has to him. What about us? We live in a church culture that speaks casually the name of Jesus. And we can get used to that. But I wonder if we've paid attention to what the pattern is in Scripture Do you notice that when you read through the epistles, Paul's epistles, Peter's epistles, the letters of John that we studied last semester, any time that Jesus is referred to, he is not called simply Jesus unless he is being placed in a historical context. He is almost always referred to with a title of respect. The Lord Jesus Christ. Christ the Lord. Jesus Christ. Always a title of respect is given to him. And even when we read in the Gospels the way that his disciples interacted with him when he was here on earth. At the feeding of the 5,000 when they come up and say, how are we going to feed all these people? Do they walk up and say, hey Jesus, everybody's hungry, what are we going to do? No, do you know what they say? Lord, how will we feed all these people? They address him with a title of respect. It's interesting, isn't it? You know what else is interesting? When you look at how Jesus' enemies addressed him in Scripture. When you see the teachers of the law coming to test him, do you know what they call him? They don't call him Jesus. They call him rabbi, teacher, another term of respect. Even if it's meant to be ironic, they refer to him with a term of respect. But guess who else refers to Jesus with a term of respect? Do you remember the story about the demons being cast out and into the pig and they start begging? And when they beg with Jesus, do they call him Jesus? Even they use a term of respect with him. And think about this. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by Satan himself, Satan refers to Jesus with a term of respect. I don't think that this means for you and me that every time we think and speak or pray to Jesus that we can't say, dear Jesus. But I think it's instructive to us in terms of the attitude of our heart. Are we like James? Not even able to lift our eyes to the idea that this person who has called me brother and friend is so far above me. 
Or have we grown casual and comfortable with the idea that Jesus is my friend? He has been a friend to you. But he is high above you. And so I think that the first thing that we can take as we approach the book of James is that unless we enter in to these 54 calls to obedience with the attitude of, I am born into slavery to righteousness by the precious blood of Adonai, Jesus, Messiah, we will have a difficult five chapters to navigate. If we walk into these chapters thinking, I've got this because Jesus is my homeboy. We've come at it from the wrong angle. But if we look to humility and if we truly understand that even he who could have claimed a connection of equality to Christ chose not to, how much more ought we to humble ourselves as we come to sit and listen to the words of James this semester? I'm going to pray and then you'll be dismissed to your small group for a short time.